I want to draw your attention to Mark chapter 10, where we will be reading the last half of the chapter together and hopefully seeing some amazing things about who Jesus is. While you're making your way to Mark chapter 10 or while you're making your way on a, on a device or, or some way to Mark chapter 10, here's what I want to give you as a, maybe a guiding principle of thought for us to think about. I love people. I'm a people watcher. I love airports um, and, and shopping malls. Uh, that's just the place in our culture where I would just say as nicely as I can, the most interesting people come together and for at least a moment have kind of a single, uh, like we have a singular focus and single goal, right? Whether it's Walmart um, or, again, a, a shopping mall or just any public sphere, a park. I'm always learning about people, but one of the most fascinating things is when you're learning about people and you're getting to know something and, and you kind of stumble across something you, you never, never thought you would, would have ever known about them. Like you stumble across something about a person and you're like, oh, I would not have guessed that. I did not see that coming, right? The interesting hobbies, typically I keep my nerdy hobbies and nerdy stuff to myself. You're not allowed to know about them unless it was an accident and someone else told you about them, right? But, but I try to keep that to myself. But every once in a while you kind of stumble upon a fact about something. And, and one of three things starts to happen, if not all three. You, you begin to kind of really love that person. You begin to like get to know something about you. Like, oh my goodness, I, I did not know. That's amazing. That makes them all the more interesting, the second thing that I think happens is that it makes them all the more useful, right? You, you know when you can turn to them. You, when you find out, hey, this guy works with cars, right? There's kind of this mental note. You go like, that's the guy I need to know. I need to know that guy. When, I, when, when it's time for my, you know, my brakes stop working, I'm, I'm going to go to this guy. Or, or my favorite, like computer people, when you get to know somebody who's really good at managing like networks or um, fixing computers, you're kind of like, I will remember that. I will be sure to ask that. Um, and the third thing I think you see is not just, not that you just kind of like grow in affection because of your knowledge of them. You don't just kind of grow in like, oh, wow, that, that's, that's, that's useful. Um, and therefore you kind of grow in trust. Um, but then you, something amazing happens. You like, it changes the way you relate to them. Uh, you meet, sometimes you'll learn something about a person that completely alters the way that you relate to them and the way that you listen to the things that come out of their mouth. Right? I know a lot about my wife in a certain way that, that I don't know anything about you, such that I relate to her much differently. And if she's like, uh, for example, if you ever see me wear anything that you're like, why is he wearing that? That's because my wife at some point or another told me that was a good thing or I look adorable and these aren't words that people usually use to describe me in any way. But if she thinks this, I tend to make a very, like a permanent etched in stone mental note. And I'm like, that, okay, I remember that. I'm going to take a note of that. But if you come to me and you're like, hey, I don't like that shirt, I'm like, Okay, that's, that's too bad for you. And we relate to one another different. And once, once you kind of get to know a person, you, you listen to what they say differently. It has, it has meaning and power. And even the way that you speak to that person changes. So here, here's the regular practice that you and I do. And I, I think the same kinds of principles can be applied when we open the Bible together. We will regularly stumble upon things about who God is and who Jesus is for us that we did not previously know or that we knew but we didn't really pay much attention to. And then the purpose is not so that we get another lump in our brain. The purpose is so that we would grow more and more in love with who God is. That as we learn something new, we, our affections for Him deepen. The second thing is that then we learn that we can trust Him. Like when you find out you know a guy who like owns a tow truck, all of a sudden that's a thing in the back of your mind you don't worry about anymore, right? My car broke down. Well, good thing my best friend owns a tow truck, right? That's a good guy to know. And the same thing happens when we, when we dig into the Scripture. We aren't just, we aren't just like 
make me scratch in our own head little fun facts and trivia about God so that we can pull them out and impress our friends at the next cocktail party. It's so that when things fall apart, we know whom we, in whom we can trust. And we know who we can turn to when things fall apart. And the last thing I think is that we, we begin to actually relate to God differently. And we begin to ask things of God that not only does He give to us, but He desires for us to have. So as we dig into some things about who Jesus is, I hope that we are not simply kind of padding our stats or making ourselves feel better because we know something more. Knowledge will puff up. It's the love that we have because of the knowledge we have that builds up and that will actually change lives. And I want you to see some powerful things about who Jesus is here. Beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And, the ba- and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as He was leaving Jericho with His disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, 
he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. May we see something maybe that we have never seen about Jesus. And may we grow in our affection and our trust and even the way that we relate to him. I think I can show you in this passage I think I can demonstrate for you by Jesus' words that Jesus has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Let me repeat that and let that make sure, let's let that make sure that kind of directs our whole thoughts and, and our paths as we're in this chapter. Jesus has done something we're not able to do for ourselves. We cannot do it. And knowing Jesus rightly, that is knowing this about Him, will allow us to know and love God more earnestly, to trust Him more courageously, and then relate to Him more authentically. Jesus has done something. The quintessential phrase that Jesus summarizes who He is and what He's done, the the thought that ought to permeate our own thoughts every single Christmas when we contemplate what it is that we're celebrating by putting lights and and thinking about Santa and, and reindeer and sleighs and snow and ornaments and all those things. The thing we ought to be thinking about, the thing that ought to permeate our minds is that phrase that Jesus is coming, that Jesus is not up there and out there, that God is not out there doing something abstract, but he is with us and for us and among us. And the thing that Jesus has come to do is to do something for us, namely to serve us. To serve us in a way that we can't serve ourselves. Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is doing this. And when we begin to open our minds to this, it changes the way that we see who God is. It changes the way that we experience suffering and hardship and failure and disappointment. And then it changes the way that we pray. And for some of you, maybe it just changes the fact that you do pray. So here we go. I want to walk through this text. Begin uh, at the beginning here and begin to maybe pick up where we left off. So up to this point in this chapter, a, a pretty large chapter, Jesus is unfolding along the way what it means to be a disciple. This is normal Christianity. The things that Jesus teaches us here are normal Christianity. They're not like varsity Christianity. It's not like special followers of Jesus do these things. This is the basic thing that followers of Jesus believe and do. Basic. Right? This, this gauntlet that he lays down isn't meant to be like some of you, I know it's a big deal that you're here and you rolled out of bed to hang around and listen to somebody talk about Jesus for 45 minutes or so. But basic Christianity is even above that. The bar is much higher and it affects the way that we view marriage and divorce that we saw last week, the, the way that we see children, and then the way that we see our possessions. And the way that we expect Jesus to simply kind of rubber stamp and approve what we already assume and know about those things, Jesus defies our understanding and gives us a radically new perspective. Such that when people come to Jesus and he goes, hey, tell us about 
divorce. He goes, I can't tell you about divorce. I've got to tell you about the meaning of real marriage. That marriage is meant to be a gift that God gives to demonstrate to the world His faithful devotion to us in spite of our rebellious and faithless behavior. That's the picture of marriage. That's the picture that Jesus wants to ingrain in normal Christianity. And then people say, well, well, that's complex and complicated. Uh, you've got to have a few degrees before you understand this kind of teaching and this kind of thing that you're teaching us about who you are and what God is doing. And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. This, in fact, is meant to be seen in simplicity. So much so that if you don't see this like a child, you don't see it at all. And if you want to see God's kingdom, you've got to have the lens of a child. You've got to have childlike acceptance, childlike approach to God's kingdom. Not childish and immature, but childlike, simple, unquestioning, unwavering trust. And then thirdly, we saw a man who came and, and he would by, by outside measure have all his life together. Later, the, another gospel calls him the rich young ruler. Here he's just a rich young man. Either way, he's a big deal. And if you think about it, this is, this is where our expectations even, are even more on display. If, if, if the most wealthy, most prominent, right, most influential, successful young man in our city, state, region, country came into our midst, right? And it kind of was like, hey, I'm in this Connection Church thing. I want to be a part of it. I want to jump in. There's something in us that would go like, all right, all right. This is a real deal. Like these influential, accomplished people, they're in on this. It must be legit. And the disciples were probably thinking the same thing until Jesus radically defied their expectation and he scared this man away by pointing out that even though he was accomplished and wealthy, his identity was wrapped up in those things so much that he could not picture life without them. And when Jesus said, give up those things for my sake, this man left. And what would have been by their expectation and maybe by our expectation, a great add to the movement ends up being a powerful, defiant example of who this movement really is about. Namely, Jesus laying down his life, doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves and inviting us to live that out as well. So here we are. Jesus picks up where he left off and he begins to speak on the road still, verse 32, that is to paint a picture of what it means to literally walk along and follow Jesus. And they're going up to Jerusalem. And he gives us the third prediction here at the end of this passage of what will happen to him once he gets there. Two other times he's already said, Mark uses the words, he spoke plainly. That eventually the Son of Man, the language that Jesus uses to refer to himself more than any other title, to emphasize that he is the one, he's a human person, even though he is the power of God and the Son of God, he's a, a one born of humanity. He is fully God and yet fully man. He says plainly to them at two different places that when he gets there, the people that you would think would love him, namely the scribes, elders, and Pharisees, are going to be the one that turn him over to be killed. But don't worry. When they betray him, when they turn against him, he's still going to succeed. And we see the details of this. It says after three days, he will rise even after they put him to death. So he's made this clear two different times before. And this is the third time that he makes it clear. But on the way, it says they were walking. And did you notice the people that were with him? It says they were amazed. And the people who were following were afraid. 
they'd heard Jesus talk about going to Jerusalem. And they heard Jesus talking about an amazing thing that was going to happen. If you remember the outspoken one, Peter, Simon Peter, who, who heard first when Jesus said, look, the Son of Man's going to go, he's going to be turned over, and he's going to go, and, uh, and they're going to kill him. And, and Simon Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes, okay, man, let's, enough with this death talk. You really need to stop talking about that. And what was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. As if to say, no, this thing that I'm doing, this hardship that I will endure, the price that I will pay is essential. And if you don't like it, if you don't get it, you're going to miss out on all the good things that come from it. And when Jesus is resolutely, did you catch that? He's like confidently walking ahead of them into this hardship. It amazes and confounds and even scares the disciples. Here's a good point for you to begin to open your minds to. Be encouraged. If the things that Jesus calls you to do, if the things that Jesus has done for you and the way that he changes you that begins to loosen your grip onto the things of this world starts to scare you, you're in good company. You're in good company. And Mark over and over tells us how the disciples just do not get it. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And they're right face to face with Jesus, but they still don't understand his plan. It's not until later that it all dawns on them. So be encouraged. This is meant to be an encouragement for you and for me that if the disciples who are right there with Jesus don't fully get it, what is it, what is it that we're missing? Right? What is it that you and I might be missing or taking for granted? So Jesus on the way is teaching them, but he's resolutely and confidently walking into his fate. Jesus senses that these people are afraid and he senses that these people are amazed and instead of simply going, okay guys, we'll take a break. Maybe, maybe we won't get there immediately. Maybe we'll put this suffering thing off. He immediately re- responds and reinforces what he had already said. Verse 33, see, we're going to Jerusalem. See, this is happening. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and then they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And then they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Do you get why they were amazed and a little bit terrified? Jesus could not be talked out of it. What they expected of him, what they knew about him, was probably a little bit wrong, was probably a little bit disconnected from who God really meant for Jesus to be for them. And as a result, they didn't appreciate what he was doing. They didn't trust that what he was doing was right. Hence, they were afraid. And then lastly, they related to him wrongly. James and John, it says, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want you to do this thing but we want you to say yes first. I, I love the language here. Have you ever done this? Um, hey, mom, hey, dad, uh, or whoever is, um, I need to tell you something, but first you've got to promise me you're not going to get mad. Right? Ever done this? Like, th- this is essentially what Jesus gets from his disciples. He's like, Jesus, okay, we need you to say yes to this question, okay? We have a question for you. We want to ask you to do something. But first, you've got to tell us you're going to do it. Okay, Jesus? Like, just, we're going to ask you to do something, but, but you need to tell us that you're on board with us. You need Jesus to tell us that you're going to do whatever it is that we ask of you. Is that cool, Jesus? And Jesus plays along. Jesus just kind of goes along with it. The disciples here, again, Mark is telling us, clearly don't get it. 
the Lord and Savior of the universe is right there in their midst. And they're saying to the Lord and Savior, hey, I'm Lord, do what I say. Instead of serving Jesus, instead of waiting His table, they're like, Jesus, you need to do something for us. And Jesus plays along. Second thing I want you to see here, what a beautiful picture of Jesus, right? This beautiful illustration of what God does when we don't see Him and love Him rightly, when we don't trust Him as we ought to, when we don't relate to Him correctly. When we don't know these things rightly, Jesus responds graciously, doesn't He? I mean, I don't know what you would do with power, okay? I don't know what you would do with authority over all things, But if I had authority and power over all things, I would be especially sensitive to the people who think they have authority over me. Like, those are the people I'd be like, oh yeah? You you want me to do this? You, you, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know who I am? Those are the people I would be keenly aware of. And Jesus does something amazing. He relates to these people in a completely opposite manner than I would. They relate to him wrongly, but be encouraged. Like Jesus patiently listens to their request. He doesn't grant it, but he listens patiently. I think this is the way this probably plays out for us. If I could illustrate this, I I get to, um, I've I've gotten in my own lifetime, gotten to listen to and even throw up um, some prayers to God that are utterly ridiculous. Have you ever, have you ever seen this? Um, I can, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with my, myself. I'll start with my own kind of uh, my own background in this. Um, there was a time when I believed that my identity was was built in sports. Um, and if some of you know what this is like, it's a weird cult um, where you're like, no, this is who I am. You know, I'm, I, any, I, I am I am baseball player. I am football player. Right? It's like real caveman like. And but you really believe that's who you are. And when you believe that, and you believe that's who you are, and 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 it kind of changes everything you you, you think about the world. You, you throw up a couple of these ridiculous prayers, ridiculous re- requests. Have you done this? So I'm on the sidelines. I'm getting ready to play the team. Um, they're over there. And I go, God, if you could let us win, right? God, help us. Um, I, mean, and, and, I mean, specifically, God, not only would you, would you not only let us win, but would, man, can I, can, I, man, can I rush for like 250 yards, maybe four touchdowns? Is that, is that cool? Would that be all right with you? Um, God, not only would you let us win, but would you let me hit a few home runs along the way? Now, here's the problem. God gave me just enough athletic ability to trick me into thinking that sometimes he was answering that prayer. Ever been there? It worked, right? But what a ridiculous thing to think about God when on the other side, on the other side of the field of, of battle, the other side of the competition, there are people looking up to God and saying the exact same thing. God, let me score a touchdown. Let me make the winning shot. Let me, you know, let me hit the home run. Whatever it is. Like they're asking God for the same thing. As if, as if the whole will of God, as if God is like, I've created the universe. I've set it in motion. But the outcome of this game, oh, it's a doozy. If this game doesn't come out right, everything I've done will be for naught. Right? As if, you know, as, as if like, again, I, I, you see this like, batters or 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 athletes that you know they cross themselves and it's like yeah because that's what the cross is about like jesus died on the cross so you could hit a home run like he he endured the pain and suffering of the cross and the rejection and uh, and the betrayal so that you could hit a home run and he was thinking the whole time 
oh, I hope that guy hits a home run. And I hope he remembers this time where I'm on the cross so that right before he hits the home run, he'll do the sign of the cross. Ever been there? And for some of you, if you're like, you do that, I apologize. I don't mean to crush your dreams and hopes. But I do mean to hopefully draw your attention to who God really is and have you to relate to him properly. Have you ever done that? You ever prayed for something that, that ultimately is kind of ridiculous? You ask things of Jesus that really, if we were honest, are for your glory and for your benefit. And even if he gave them to you, you wouldn't have any gratitude. You'd want the next thing as soon as this one was in your lap. You ever heard this? I've shared this, like, in the end, the Spirit only does that which draws attention to Jesus. God's only will in the world is to draw the nations to Him and Jesus so that He can redeem them and restore them and give them an infinite and eternal peace. And here we are, we come to God and we have all of the riches and the eternal blessings at our disposal in Jesus Christ, and we're like, God, please let me get this job. I mean, I don't really want it. It's really just a step to the next job that I really want. But God, please. And at our disposal is the eternal peace for all the world. And and we go, God, can I have this thing? You see, when we see God wrongly, it often not only helps us, it, it, it causes us to not love him rightly, but it causes us to not trust him. And then we relate to him wrongly. And we ask him for things he never meant to give. And God in His infinite wisdom will respond patiently. So be encouraged in light of your bad prayers and mine that are for our glory and not His. Note what Jesus does for the disciples. He goes, all right. Instead of just crushing them, instead of destroying them and telling them how awful their prayers are, like I just did, He goes, let's just listen. Let's see what you have. But they're clearly relating to Him wrongly, are they not? Instead of seeing Jesus as God, they see themselves as God, and therefore they want Jesus to do for them what they're meant to do for God. They they see themselves as the one being waited on. They see Jesus as the servant waiting tables for them. And Jesus responds with patience. So be encouraged. When you prayed and when I prayed to win that game that didn't matter, even though I remember every detail of it, I know, uh, when I prayed for that game to turn out a certain way and it didn't, because I don't know if you know how that works, the bigger, faster, stronger team always wins. I just, that's just a fun fact for you. It's not like, oh, you prayed. Never mind, you're slower and weaker than the other team. You get to win now, right? That, that works for David and Goliath. For the rest of us, not so much. Again, that was for his glory, not ours. So if you have prayed that prayer, be encouraged. Jesus will patiently and graciously walk along with you. And he won't rebuke you, but he will subtly and patiently allow you to see him rightly. But it just means that we may be relating to him wrongly. This looks like this. Um, My daughters, on a regular basis, ask me for things that because I am a good father, I will never give them. Because I am a good father, I will never allow that thing to come into their possession. You ever seen this? Any good parent will do this. And when they say no, it is not because they do not love them. It is because, in fact, it is against their, it is a contradictory to their nature as father, contradictory to their nature as mother to grant them something. Right? So I I remember um, when when our youngest was a little, little bitty one and she wanted to help cook over the stove. 
and she like climbed up next to the stove. They still do this. Um, um, and they're like, get, no, get back. It's a fire. You know, are you serious? And so the, she was like real little. She was up there, just wanted to help um, with us frying some stuff. And she's like right there with the pop and grease. And she's like, hey, can I help? Can I, I, I want to do this. And, and you know what I said to her? Because I'm an absolute jerk and insensitive. I said no. And in that moment, she cried, melted down, and really felt at enmity with, with her father. In that moment, she thought, what a terrible person this guy is. And, and I said no, because it is against my nature as a good and loving father to allow her to have something that will destroy her. So the next time you request something of God and you're praying something of God and you seem to get no over and over and over again, just begin to open your eyes to the possibility that you, like the disciples, even though you might have a, 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 an, your eyes sort of open to who Jesus is, you might still be missing out on who he really is. And you may be relating to him wrongly, just like these disciples. Jesus, we want to do this thing. And Jesus responds very politely, very kindly. And he uses this phrase twice in this chapter. And see if you'll pick up on when he uses it again. He says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus opens their eyes to the fact that they are relating to him wrongly. They say, we want to be like your, we want to be in your cabinet. We want to be chief of staff. I want to be secretary of state. When you come into your glory, because for them, the way they understood glory was the way that they understood glory and authority in all the rest of the world. That the guy who's the most strong, the most powerful, the wisest, the richest, he's the guy who wins. And he brings along all his friends. And he crushes all the opposition. And so these guys related to Jesus the same way they would have related to anyone with any power or authority. They said, when you get it, when you win, when you get your glory, we want to be there. We just want to tap into this. We want to be sitting next to you when you're in your glory. What they didn't realize was that the greatest glory of Jesus Christ would not be like any other leader. In fact, the greatest glory that Jesus would experience, the greatest glory that God meant to demonstrate to the world would be when he was hanging on the cross. And the one who was at his right and the one who was at his left were criminals. Do you get it? Do you see how this starts to flip our understanding of Jesus upside down? Do you get maybe how this changes the way we love Jesus, the way we trust him, and then the way we relate to him? They say, we're able to do the thing you're doing. Drink the cup. That would have meant judgment, typically. Baptized. That would have been, been immersed. Are you going to go through what I'm going through? Are you going to receive the kind of wrath and experience the kind of rejection that I'm going to experience? And they go, we're able, dude. We're able. And Jesus, being kind, didn't say, uh, he just goes, you're right. You will be baptized. It will be similar. You will drink the same cup. It will be similar. But when I come into my glory, the one at my right and my left will be radically different than anyone you expect. Because in this kingdom, the one who is great is not the one who lords his power and authority over you. The one who is great in this kingdom is the one who lays down his authority and power for your sake. The great king is not the one who sends his troops to battle and to die for his cause. The great king in this kingdom runs in front of the troops to die so that they would know nothing but life. For even the Son of Man, he says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to do something. 
He came to accomplish something for these people. He came to do something specifically that they could not do for themselves. And he came to serve, not to be served. So this is where I want you to hear the good news of Jesus. He has accomplished all that which you have meant to have in your life. He has afforded for you all the riches and all the blessings that you can ever experience in all of eternity. But even now, even right now, you're probably thinking about what God wants you to do. Even now, most of our, 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 our response, even, even the preachers up here are like, yeah, Jesus did this thing. And, and some of you right now are thinking, well, well, I better go do this now. Well, I better do this. And what you are saying, subtly but clearly, is that you think that what Jesus has done is less important than what you have done. What Jesus has afforded for you is greater than what you will do. And right now you're thinking, you know, you're trying to tell me that Jesus wants to serve me, but yet I'm telling you that there are some things that I need to take care of first. Right? If if I told you right now, like, get right with Jesus, repent from the things that keep you from a loving and holy and just God, even then some of you begin to think like, well, I got to do some stuff. I got to get rid of this stuff. I got to stop doing that and I got to start doing this. And if you're not careful, what you have assumed about yourself is that what you do is greater than what Jesus has done. And if you're not careful, you will subtly be believing that your standing before God is based on what you have done and not what God has done for you in Jesus. And you will constantly take this from me as one who has failed at this for the better part of my own life. You will find nothing but wretched misery. Because you will come to the end of yourself and realize that you are still insufficient and that all that you have done is still not good enough. Hear the good news. It is what Jesus has done and the way that he has served us, that has saved us and ransomed us, redeemed us. It is not what you have done. I cannot say that enough. It is only by trusting in what he has done that we even have the ability to serve him rightly. Because if you don't know what Jesus has done for you, and if you don't know that that's the most important thing, then everything you think you're doing to serve him will actually serve yourself. If you don't know that the good news for the world is that Jesus has saved them from the wrath of God, then you will think that the thing that Jesus has called you to do is simply to feed hungry people, or to clothe naked people, or to house homeless people. Not realizing that you have not addressed their greatest need. So yes, we do feed the naked. We always feed them. <laughs> Put some clothes on first. Here's some food. We feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We house the homeless. But we do so so that they would realize that the ultimate price has been paid for them. Don't ask a guy if he's naked if he's hungry. Give him your coat. Killed it, man. Just killing it. We do these things so that people will see how good Jesus is. Because his kingdom is upside down. And he's done something that we could never do ourselves. And if you miss this, then I'm afraid you will not love Jesus rightly. You will not trust him. And you will relate to him wrongly. You will constantly be asking Jesus of something that he has no desire to give to you. And he will not give it to you. And it will frustrate you. 
It would be a terrible injustice for Jesus to allow you to find your satisfaction in that thing that you are pursuing. If your job, the next one you get, or if the next paycheck, if that really could solve all that's wrong with you, then Jesus would be an awful, awful, awful God to allow you to have it. In the same way that it would be a terrible father if I gave into the crying of my small daughter so that she could play with hot grease on a burning stove. That doesn't make me a good father. It makes me a terrible one. Begin to see that when we, when we recognize all that God has done for us in Jesus, we relate to Him rightly. So how do we do that? How do we see Him for who He is? How do we take this seriously? First, I think, is you have a humble admission to His Lordship. The prayers that you start to ask look less and less like these disciples, and they look more and more like the guy at the end of the story, Bartimaeus. The way that we approach God looks less and less like, okay, God, promise me, if you'll do this, you know, say yes, and I'll, I'll tell you this, you just promise me you'll do it. And they look more and more like Bartimaeus, who loudly and obnoxiously knows that he has no hope other than Jesus. It begins with a humble admission of Jesus as Lord. And then it becomes, to, and it turns into an acknowledgement that you actually need him to do what you cannot do for yourself out of a posture, posture of desperation. You see, one of the things that we miss about Jesus being the ransom for us is we, we miss the picture that Jesus has done something for us that's built into the world, and therefore when we miss, on it, miss out on it, we, we actually think that we've got problems bigger than sin. We actually think that we've got problems in our life that are greater than our rebellion against God. Well, you know how this looks. If a fugitive is running from, running from the law because he's guilty of something like a you know, federal offense, if he's running from the law, it doesn't matter where he goes or what he does. The law will find him. He can cover it up. He can pretend as though it doesn't exist. But till he dies, the law will be hunting him down. Now multiply the authority that we begin to picture in the federal government times the infinite majesty of a loving and wrathful and just God, and you begin to understand what's at stake here. You can help the old lady across the street, but if you're wanted by a federal judge for murder... You don't get to go to the judge and go, hey, but I helped an old lady across the street. No, friend, your crime is much more egregious. And it must be settled. And the same thing is here. Jesus is saying that our greatest need, the only purpose for which he has come, is to redeem us from that which we have flung upon ourselves. Sometimes we begin to feel this. Sometimes we begin to understand that maybe our sin is real. But do we really acknowledge that it's dire and desperate? Do we really believe that without Jesus, we have no access to God? Did you catch the other time that Jesus said that phrase that he said in verse 36 to his disciples, what do you want me to do for you? The next time he says it, he says it to this blind man. This is the last healing miracle that Mark will tell us about. There's a few other miracles, but they aren't healing. This is the last one. It's the only healing miracle that Mark tells us about that he tells us the name. And not only does he tell us the name, but he tells us the name of the man's father, as if to say, not only is this a real person, but this is a man whose father is thus. 
Most people think that's probably because the audience that Mark was speaking to, the church that was beginning to experience persecution in Rome, was probably beginning to wonder if Jesus really was God, if Jesus really could save them. And when Mark draws attention to this guy and tells him by name, it's probably because they know him. They may have heard of him, or maybe they know his father, maybe they know his family. It's meant to be an encouragement that this was a guy, and the only remarkable thing about him was his obnoxious understanding of his own desperation. He obnoxiously knew that without Jesus, he was without hope. And when Jesus asked the two questions, one to his disciples and one to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? The one that he actually answered and responded was to the man who had a posture of desperation. Jesus, have mercy on me. One of them realizes the dire circumstances before Jesus and asks him to make it right. The other one, the disciples, ignores the dire circumstances, assumes that they're already been taken care of, and wants something else for their own benefit. They didn't say, Jesus, have mercy on me. We, we want you to do this one thing for us, Jesus. Jesus, just say yes. And that thing is to show us mercy before God. Instead, it was to say, we want a share of your glory. Whereas Bartimaeus says, my request of you, Jesus, is that you would have mercy on me and that you would restore, maybe to assume that he had been able to see before, restore my sight. And you know the request that Jesus responds in the, in the affirmative to? The one who's desperate. This is a guy who shamelessly shouts out his need for Jesus. He shamelessly shouts out that he needs Jesus' help. And he sees Jesus for who he really is and he sees his condition as it really is. And there's a beautiful thing that happens when you see Jesus rightly. You love Him the more dearly. You begin to trust Him more powerfully. And you begin to relate to Him rightly. You see, if the heart of your worldview is a man who's dying for his enemies, then the rest of the world looks different. You'll view everything differently. And Bartimaeus gets a glimpse into this. And Jesus unfolds His plan for His disciples At one moment, he unfolds his plan to some disciples that take Jesus for granted. And then he unfolds his plan to a man who does not. One is desperate for the saving and healing power of Jesus. And one says, yeah, we get that. Now what do we get out of it? They've drastically overlooked their own desperation. So here's where I think this begins to land in our own lives. When we see Jesus rightly, we're stirred with a new affection for Him, a new love for Him that He has met the one need that we could never meet ourselves. We couldn't do it on our own. The second thing I think we see is when we, when we learn to trust Him because we learn who He is, we're full of confidence. And then lastly, we begin to relate to Him rightly. Some of you right now are begging Jesus to do something and you are frustrated beyond belief because you don't think he will do it for you. And I would argue it's possible that like the disciples, you and I do not see him as he truly is. And you do not see your desperate sinfulness as it really is. So what does this look like for us? Some of you are desperate right now. Some of you are you're broken and, and you're in an awful spot and and your attitude and your outlook reflect it. And you're wondering right now if there's a way out of this. When we see Jesus rightly, we begin to trust him. Remember what I told you? 
It's kind of funny. If your car breaks down, but you, know, you have a friend who lives next door and he's got a tow truck, something different happens to your worry, right? You're like, eh, I know the right guy to fix this. Friend, if you will see Jesus as he truly is, you will come to find out in the midst of your desperation, there is one in whom you can trust. He is the one who has already made a way for you and for me. Don't despair. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. There is one and He has already accomplished for you and for me that which we could never do for ourselves. And He has done it so that you and I in the moment of our greatest desperation when we finally cry out that we are helpless and hopeless, He graciously comes and gives us life. He opens our eyes. He opens our mind and gives us a brand new life that lasts forever and ever. Friend, are you despair? Are you in despair? Are you hopeless? Would you hear this good news? Jesus has already made a way back. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no, 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 there's more to it than that. There's got to be something more. I've got to do something. And to you, I would just say the words of Jesus. Listen, Jesus did not come so that you would do something special for him. Okay? He's not waiting for you to get your life together and serve him in some radical capacity. He's not waiting for you to finally stumble upon the answer, have your eyes open to the solution, and then you do it. He did not come to be served by you. You are not special. He came to serve you, to demonstrate his great love for you. He came to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He came to do for you what you right now are probably as hard as you can trying to do for yourself. Friend, believe that he's done it. It will open your eyes. It will stir your affection for a God who never forsakes us. It will give you trust and hope in the midst of the most desperate times. And you will begin to relate to our God, not as a slave to a master, but as a child to a father. Let's pray. God, I confess to you that even as the words come out of my own mouth, that you have done this for us, you have accomplished this for us. Um, I am so self-centered that I still think there's got to be something I ought to do. Just believing it seems like it's too good to be true. It seems like a gift that I don't, I don't quite understand. God, we confess that we regularly, even in these moments, think that this is about us, that we have somehow gathered together for something that we ought to do or that we ought to accomplish. We pool our resources and thoughts and energy together for something that we often believe is really about us. Would we hear in these moments this word of good news that you have done for us that which we could never do for ourselves? The striving that we experience, the, the railing against the way that the world works, that just leaves us in despair. Jesus, you've already overcome that world. You've already achieved victory for us. And the glory that you mean to give to us is not something that we can earn or even destroy, but it is something that you have earned and given to us by your grace. 
If there's some in this room, they've never begun to trust how good you really are. They've never recognized that, that they must look away from themselves. They must look outside of their blindness to see a hope that is in Jesus. If they've never begun to think that, would this be the first time? Would this be the moment their eyes are open, they're transferred from the darkness in which they have lived and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son so that just like Bartimaeus, our faith and trust in your healing power will be enough to celebrate your goodness forever. Open our eyes, God, that we would see this. For those of us who maybe know this, but we're so prone to trust in ourselves, we're so prone to be frustrated by the conditions of the world that are based on our own decisions or our own consequences, would you begin to overwhelm us with an awareness that you have done something for us we cannot do, and the beauty in that is you've done something for us that we can't mess up. You have saved us in such a way that we cannot mess it up. There is nothing that we can do that will be greater than what you have done. Restore that hope, renew that sense of excitement in us, and let us live and serve accordingly. We love you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.